Welcome to Reliability Matters, a podcast for the electronic assembly industry. Each episode covers topics related to reliability, best practices, and environmentally responsible assembly techniques with insights from experts across the electronic assembly industry. Now, here's your host, Mike Conrad. Welcome to episode 64 of the Reliability Matters podcast. On this episode, we'll have a conversation with two industry experts on the subject of solder voiding mitigation and oven profiling, two subjects which both influence solder voiding. This will be a two-part episode. Today, we'll dive into void mitigation and how vacuum reflow technology can help reduce or eliminate voiding. Part two on episode 65, coming up in two weeks, we'll discuss profiling best practices. My guests today and on the next episode are Tim O'Neill from AIM Solder and Fred DeMock of BTU International. Tim will discuss voiding mitigation from a material standpoint, while Fred will cover equipment and profiling strategies. Tim O'Neill is the technical marketing manager for AIM Solder. Operating out of AIM's U.S. headquarters, Tim is responsible for developing and optimizing product and technical information, collaborating with complementary suppliers and equipment manufacturers, and ensuring AIM's products exceed expectations and meet market requirements. Tim is also a technical writer and presenter for industry trade publications and events. He has co-authored several papers on PCB assembly subjects. Tim is also an IPC A610 certified specialist. Fred DeMock is the manager of process technology at BTU International and recently started a consulting business, FCD Global Services. Fred holds an associate's degree in mechanical engineering from Wentworth in Boston and a bachelor's degree in ceramic engineering from the State University of New York. Fred has also authored numerous articles on lead-free solder process control and operation of continuous furnaces. His papers have been published in English, Chinese, and German. He has taught numerous SMTA solder reflow classes and participated in the 5-45 subcommittee for the development of IPC 7801, Reflow Oven Process Control Standard. Additionally, he wrote the chapter on solder reflow for the Handbook of Electronic Assembly, a guide to SMT certification by Dr. Lasky and Jim Hall. Fred received distinguished speaker status at SMTA Guadalajara, Mexico, and is a key presenter for the SMTA Jumpstart program for new engineers. This episode is available in both audio only and a video format. To view the video complete with Fred's informative slide deck, visit our Reliability Matters YouTube channel. Now here's my conversation with Tim and Fred. Tim O'Neill, Fred DeMarc, welcome to Reliability Matters. Thanks for being my guest today. Tim, thanks for a second round with me. This is your second appearance on this show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for inviting me to be a part of this. This is, this is exciting. I, I like to do these sorts of things. Tim, your stuff is what goes into his oven. So uh, you're equally to blame or equally, uh, or you can equally take credit for the successes. So it's long been said um, by many that uh, pretty much all reliability problems start at the print process. I'm going to kind of just shove that one degree uh, uh, down the river and, uh, and say that reflow has just as much to do with it because after all, you're reflowing what has been printed uh, with whatever materials they've been printed with. So I think between the, the printing, uh, the material selections and the reflow process, that's pretty much going to set up 
the, the success or failure of a circuit in the future. Uh, so uh, I think this is a, a valid uh, and timely topic. First, before we get started, uh, Tim, you're with AIM. How's AIM doing in this whole, uh, this whole uh, COVID debacle that we're going through right now? I think you mean the upside down world. Uh, in the upside down world, AIM is doing very well, in fact. Uh, I think I would speak for uh, a lot of the, my colleagues in this industry that electronics have done fairly well. And I think it has a lot to do with the investments people are making in their home offices, um, the advancements that are taking place in automobiles, um, connectivity, all of these things revolve around electronics manufacturing. So the pandemic has actually uh, increased the demand for a lot of these devices. So our industry, thankfully, has been somewhat unscathed so um, we are on an upward trajectory. And in fact, I would say we've uh, probably had a little uptick in activity uh, due to the, uh, due to the you know, changes in the market. Excellent. And uh, Fred, how's, how's things at uh, BTU? Um, oh, very, very much along the same lines as what you heard from Tim. Um, um, we've seen things uh, really continuing to move forward. Um, since we're talking basically about the SMT side here, that is since that stayed very strong with us for us. Uh, we're seeing uh, customers being very active, but also we have a second part of our business, which is a high temperature furnaces, and that hasn't slowed down either. I mean, that's just uh, there are a lot of people talking about uh, replacing furnaces. There are a lot of people replacing furnaces. There are some new people getting involved in in the industry, so. So we have seen, seen, seen very little slowdown as itself. But us in doing the work gets to be a little bit harder because some of us are forced to stay home. You know, it's been hard to do some traveling. Uh, you know, we've learned how to use a lot of the electronic, <laughs> the things that are available to us, a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, online conferences. Uh, so again, it's changed the way we do things just a little bit. Yeah. You know, I, I, I've long commented that for an industry that is a highly technical industry, we build the things that make the world work. Um, I think we're a little behind when it comes to uh, f you know, all the familiarities with uh, digital communications, you know, Zoom meetings and things like that. I, I, I can't tell you how many it's meetings I've had. Because we're all old. That's probably it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. yeah the, young, the younger guys have a very easy time going in and using them. The, like, like Tim suggested, we're old, uh, but you can treat, can, can teach us old dogs new tricks. Well, we've clearly have. My mom is 83 years old, and uh, every once in a while I'll get a little frustrated because she'll call me and ask me how to do something on the computer technical, and it's, it's kind of a long process to walk her through it. And then I, then I have to pause and go, she's 83. She's on Facebook. She's on Instagram. She Zooms. <laughs> she's 83. So yeah, I, it's, I have to put everything in perspective. So let's talk about, um, let's talk about reflow. And I'm going to ask, I'll throw it out to both of you, whoever wants to jump into the, in, into the uh, fire pit first is welcome to. Uh, what are the most common issues, and I'm not going to let you off the hook there, and solutions uh, encountered during reflow? Oh, I, I would huh. say that, huh. yeah, I'd say that <laughs> current, currently, and I think Tim may agree with this one, is that the, 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 
the current issues that we're hearing most about, I think, is voids. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot of that going on, and and uh, there are a couple of couple of um, solutions that we see that are in that area. One of those is uh, is the low voiding paste, um, and the low voiding paste really allow people to get down to a bit lower level in voiding. And then the other part of that is something that's very, very low, uh, very, very low voiding. And then we go to vacuum reflow. Um, is this a good time to talk about <laughs> vacuum reflow? What do I? It's do I, always, <laughs> it's never a bad time to talk about vacuum reflow, Fred. Okay. Uh, you want me okay. to share, you want me to put your slide deck up? Sure, you can do that. There we go. Okay. Yeah. Okay, you know, the void issues, and the first slide talks about the void issues, and, and really what we talk about is the thermal management of QFNs, and that's that basically about keeping the, keeping the chip cool by eliminating voids, because empty spaces and thermal pads don't transfer heat. And now, they aren't really empty spaces, and I, I talk about them by empty spaces because early in one of the trials that we're doing, um, we talked about vacuum reflow as being something we use nothing to remove the empty spaces. You know, vacuum being being, being uh, nothing, the empty spaces, you know, being the voids. But really, the empty spaces predominantly end up with flux in them, and flux doesn't transfer heat as well as the metal does. Recently, we've heard people with... Uh, uh, we're working with high frequency signals uh, talking about voids affecting what goes on what goes on in that in that in that uh, in the connections that it, it, it seems to distort the freak frequencies and people are people are a little concerned about that what we know is that typical reflow results in about 40 percent voids and thermal pads that's been fairly well known and when people be first began talking about voiding, you know, I had a lot of hope that guys like Tim and his team would be able to come up with low voiding pace that would really get the void level down dramatically. Okay. But, and we've learned that low voiding pace do, does work. Um, they've been able to, I've heard people report on, uh, getting down to, you know, from that 40% that, that we'd normally see down to the layers of 15%. I've heard some people talk about about 10% and down to even 5%. Um, but really Fred, the let's, question, let's make this yeah. a little interactive. Um, I, I want to only pause because I want to get Tim collated into this conversation. <laughs> uh, you'd said that, uh, that the solder paste manufacturers have come up with different formulations to reduce voiding. Tim, what are you doing? How are you doing that? Well, um, there's some realities that we have to contend with. And one, the most important one, is the fact that uh, solder paste is approximately 50% flux by volume. So the printed deposit on that pad, once it's reflowed, half of it's flux and flux residue. So how you manage the amount that is volatized during the reflow process and how you can um, uh, get it to move places that you want it to is, is our role. And that involves the solvents that are used, 
the even the 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 alloy that's in use can have an effect the wetting forces and all of these things interplay with the profile and i want to just you can't overstate the importance of profiling um and the oven technology in terms of outcomes for all defects i uh have this mantra that i say and it's simply that the only place on a production line where the output can be manipulated in real time is the oven. So let's assume at the printer, we have our stencil design dialed in and it's perfect. So that means that the amount of solder paste is well controlled. It's in the designed pattern and the uh, exact location where we want it to go. That's a perfect printing process, but it's static. Once those variables are fixed, you have to actually go and get a new stencil in order to change them. So there's not much you can do. The solder paste is fixed. It is what it is. Um, placement, once that's optimized, then you're putting the component where it's supposed to be, orientated correctly with the right amount of pressure and the right amount of depth. That's fixed. So what can I do as a solder paste manufacturer to change an outcome? And that's all in the oven. So um, you know, voiding is, I agree with Fred, voiding is probably the most commonly discussed subject and one of the reasons is is because it's so difficult to resolve satisfactorily um not it's only one of the most of, it's certainly one of the most discussed things on this program uh, yeah I think, for sure i think voiding sure. comes up like every three episodes or so it's hard to fix we wouldn't be talking about it if there was an easy solution right sure. we'd, we'd, we'd have fixed it by now uh, and there isn't one um but other common issues that we address with the oven are and two that come to mind are wetting issues so we can manipulate the way that a solder paste wets by restructuring the profile. There's you know, certain families of profiles, we call them linear profiles or ramp to spike, a ramp soak spike, and then you can manipulate the soak to a high soak, low soak, long soak. And these are all strategies that our technical staff is well-versed in that they can assess a assembly's thermal characteristics and then deploy these strategies that have proven to have a desired outcome um, in order to Get, up, get the customer the result that they need. And then finally, um, residue, the amount of residue, the location of the residue, the consistency of the residue, those things can all be manipulated in the profile as well. Keeping in mind, there are limitations. I mean, the profile, uh, if, the, if the paste is in some way compromised or the board's in some way compromised or the components in some way compromised, profiling can address some of the issues, but it's not gonna fix a, a uh, glaring issue. It's it's It's, it's more of a nuanced uh, correct, corrective action than a, uh, a dramatic corrective action. So profiling, super important and um, often neglected. Right. Yeah, Thank we, you. We, Thank we you for as, that. We as the, uh, I'm sorry, we as the, uh, the furnace guy really have to count on people like Tim to tell us what the profile needs to be because it is so complicated. You know, and, and that's that's really that's really where it comes. That's where the low voiding pace comes from, um, and how it's how, how what what the thermal profile is. But the issue, but the issue tends to be uh, that people don't truly understand what level of voiding that they can withstand within 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 the uh, within the thermal pad, and that's why I got to put the note down there. Says voids are still higher than desired. So why don't you flip to the next one? Let's see. Okay. So no void is a good void. Is is uh, is, is another. Uh, we we yeah, just don't want any one. any voiding. <laughs> right. 
Mike Malonis at uh, the Area Consortium out of Universal did this study a bit, bit of time ago. I worked very closely with Mike. He showed that on MFL 100s, the standard no cleans were up at about 33% in air. And then um, as, he, as he went down through low voting paste in air and in nitrogen and changed the, changed the, the, uh, the, the profiles a bit, uh, he, he showed that he could get down to about 10% with a very hot profile in nitrogen. And you can see the, through the two, uh, the, the, the two X-ray images there, the, what a, what a 33% voiding looks like and what a, uh, what a 10% voiding looks like. And it, it's, it's still interesting that even at 10%, it looks like there's a fair number of voids in there, and some of them are fairly large. If you flip over to the next one, okay, so the question is, why vacuum reflow? Well, we know that voids are formed by the flux resonance in the, in the, in the outgassing of the flux. They grow by merging together, and if, and that's a big if, they contact an exposed surface, they escape the solder. That's how they come out. Large voids are more likely to contact that surface than disappear. Okay. Vacuum reflow actually uses Pascal's law. So what happens is you lower the pressure, the voids get larger, and the larger, the larger voids have an opportunity to combine and become even larger ones and then contact the surface. Also, what we've seen is when you put a vacuum on a, on, on a joint, what happens is the voids tend to move around a lot quicker. They tend to be a lot more mobile, and then that again has the opportunity to combine. Um, if you jump to the next step, uh, there are four basic parts of the vacuum, vacuum process. Okay, one is pump down, and this doesn't include transport in and out of the, out of the chamber. Um, um, the pump down is really the rate at which the vacuum is applied. What we found was if the rates were too high, we ran into issues. One of those issues was there's the voids come out of the out of the out of the paste. They come out catastrophically. They almost explode out of the paste if it's too fast. What happens then is you end up with solder balls and splatter. And we even found that. Uh, at very high pump down rates, we could take an MFL 100 and flip it over on the board. Absolutely just turn it over. It was amazing to see that. The vacuum level is the level you go to. That's usually in tour. Hold time is in seconds. And then when you get through with that cycle, you need to return things back to room atmosphere so you can get this chamber open. This chamber actually sits in a reflow oven in the hot section of the reflow oven just before the cooler. So it's in the oven and this it's working in that hot section of the oven. If it's a nitrogen oven, which most of them are, this is actually within the nitrogen atmosphere in the center of the oven. If you flip to the next page. Let me ask you, Fred, an sure. ignorant question, if you don't mind. I love asking ignorant questions. Oh, no, no, there is so, no ignorant question. Oh, yeah, you don't know me well enough. So uh, <laughs> to, to, to draw a vacuum, obviously, it has to be a sealed environment. So there, I, I'm guessing, unless there's some miraculous uh, technology out there that I'm not aware of, that uh, a, a, um, a vacuum reflow process is more of a batch process. It's, is it? Is it Actually, conveyorized? Is it yeah. completely batch? Is it hybrid? What we, yeah, we, what we, it's basically a hybrid. What we do is we take a standard convection reflow oven and put a vacuum chamber 
between the last heated zone and the cooler. It's actually inside the oven. The vacuum chamber is an, a, 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 an elevated temperature because you need to keep the, keep the board hot and keep the solder molten for that to work. So it actually sits inside. There are two types of chambers. One's the bell jar design that actually, actually just is a typical bell jar. You raise the cover, you raise the top of it up, put the, put the board in the chamber, lower it, and it goes through that pump down cycle. The other one actually has two doors, one on the entrance and the exit of that area. You do have to stop the board when it's in the chamber during the that's, pump down. That's what I was going to ask. The <laughs> conveyor has to stop, right? Because it has to yes. form the seal. So when the yes. conveyor stops, what's happening to the boards before the <laughs> vacuum part? Are they just stop? Are they just baking in one place, or what? <laughs> no, what happens? No, no that, that if we had to do that, it would really affect the profile. What we what we do is we have a transfer. So the so the typical the typical conveyor in the oven runs continually. Um, in our case, when it gets to the vacuum chamber, it actually goes down underneath the vacuum chamber and back up. There's a transfer between the the conveyor that's in the in the oven to the vacuum chamber. So there's a separate conveyor inside the vacuum chamber. And then what it does is actually stops the board in the chamber while it goes through the vacuum cycle. That means there's sensors in there that have to work at a very high temperature. You know, and some of those are up at, uh, you know, some of those temperatures we run in the vacuum chamber is close to 300 degrees C. So, so that's some significant, uh, <laughs> let me tell you, I'm impressed with the sensors, okay? Um, there's also a seal that has to work at this high temperature and, and, uh, and with, the, with, the, with the low vacuum. So, so that, that seal is, is really very important, the materials that are in that. Um, um, you know, and then that does mean, though, that you cannot put the boards right next to each other when they go through the, go through the, go through the reflow of it. They have to have a space. You know, and what we use is we use SMEMA and some timing on SMEMA for when the next board is allowed to come into the oven so that we don't run a board into a closed chamber or that we don't have a board within the seal area when the, uh, when the chamber comes down because you certainly do not want to ruin that seal. Those seals can be very expensive. Yeah, well, very interesting. Thanks for sorting out the, the flow diagram in my head. <laughs> Tim, um, before we let loose Fred again to continue his presentation, any, any input on uh, vacuum reflow? from a material standpoint? Well, I was fortunate enough to work with Fred on some of this. I've actually seen that oven uh, in the uh, APL lab at Universal Instruments, and it is quite an impressive piece of equipment. Um, it's almost uh, what I would call cliche, it's space age. It's got all, uh, all, of, all of the literal bells and whistles. Um, but no, I, you know, vacuum reflow voiding, uh, there, has to be a good reason to need voiding to go to that level. Um, we are continuing to develop our chemistries to, to reduce voiding levels. In fact, we are going to be releasing a product in Q1 that specifically addresses uh, void, voiding, hopefully better than uh, its predecessors. Uh, I'd say the numbers... Um, you know, there is the IPC Rev H just came out with a 50% voiding um, maximum as an advisory. 
it will become a specification, I'm, I presume, even though it's not a specification technically, but it's a advisory. Um, and I think it'll be driven by customer requirements regarding the, trans the heat transfer that um, Fred mentioned. So while a 50% uh, spec will address most of the industry's requirements, obviously there's going to be applications that that's unacceptable and they're going to have to come up with their own level of voiding. Um, you know, it isn't just QFNs that are affected. Uh, we have uh, clients, particularly in the automotive arena, that have maximum void levels for other components as well. So we know about BGA. There's a 30% max spec, which is different than an advisory um, on the uh, IPC. But then uh, we have other clients that have m maximum void levels for all components, including um, leaded devices and uh, chip caps. So it voiding, I think, has been vilified, perhaps uh, unnecessarily. Um, I think it is a, a proverbial red herring when it comes to some of the fail failure mechanisms that are out there. But uh, the fact that you can see it and you have a failure, the correlation's very difficult not to, uh, it's very not to, very difficult not to conclude that the voiding is somehow responsible for the failure mechanism. So I think we're going to have to live with this desire for low to no voids forever sure. and ever. And we've said on the show before, you know, clearly before we had x-ray, we had no voids and uh, <laughs> x-ray. So clearly x-ray causes voiding. So gentlemen, from a, again, another uh, ignorant question from a failure a standpoint, failure analysis standpoint, voiding, what's the biggest failure caused by voiding? Is it a, um, a, a an inferior bond, an intermetallic bond? So, you know, a, a joint can just break off if there's not enough solder volume underneath. B, uh, heat dissipation, lack of heat dissipation, and the part overheats and burns up. Or C, not enough current can get through uh, a smaller solder connection, or it, A and D, any others, or uh, if you see the E, all of the above. What What's uh, your take on that? <laughs> uh, mostly what we hear about is B, is that's, that's heat dissipation, because uh, I mean, that's the thermal pads. But, but we're also hearing people, again, about in the high-frequency market, high-frequency area, um, thinking that voids do affect what goes on in the in, in the leads and in, in the lead area um there would have been some reports out though that say that voiding actually uh, how, how to say this voiding um the presence of voids actually helps stop uh, uh cracks that would go through a solder joint because they interrupt the cracks and they actually make the the effect of the solder joint a little bit stronger um and I have heard that numerous times from people. So but you heard it here first. Improve reliability. Add voids. Tim's formulating a high-voiding pace right yeah, now. Right. I got a few of those. It's the size of the voids, I think. Um, but, but, you know, we're, we are hearing, hearing, uh, hearing a mixed bag from where people need to be in voiding. I mean, it's, it's, it tends to be all over the place. So. Uh, um, we still do have people saying that they need less than five percent voiding because because of because of thermal conductivity. A lot of it comes in with the uh, with the automotive people that want to put higher power in the chips, and what they want to do is have have the minimal amount of voiding, 
I'll talk a little bit about about voting, about percent voting, a little bit later as we go along. But uh, but uh, but do we we are continuing to hear that? Uh, uh, but like I say, the voting that they talk about is kind of all over the place. Uh, you know, uh, I would say that in general, uh, I think we're predominantly hearing less than ten percent voiding is what people want. You know, there's yeah. another failure mechanism. When I was doing my A, B, C, D, yeah. uh, there's an F uh, also F for failure, and that goes into the to the um, uh, electrochemical migration world, uh, which is dealt with by the cleaning industry. Uh, you know, people when they when they see hear the term void. You know, we think void means nothing. You know, it's void of anything. It's only void of solder. Uh, and Tim, I think, as you mentioned earlier, um, there's there's um, uh, flux in that void, and that uh, and, and typically that might be unactivated flux. It might be activators. You know, bad bad actors otherwise. And if you have a lot of voiding, there's a pretty good chance you have a lot of entrapped uh, flux activators or some flux components within that void, which is what you know, cause the solder not to reflow there. So, and that's depending with the, with the proliferation of bottom terminated components, uh, depending on a lot of other factors, that's created an issue in, in the uh, ECM reliability world, uh, electrochemical migration, where we're seeing failures uh, because of uh, the volume of flux or flux activators or some form of bad actors within that void area. Uh, any comment on that, Tim? I don't know if it's isolated to the void area specifically. I think it's an issue that's been realized with low standoff devices becoming more and more widely used. Um, what the data has shown and uh, my competitors and as well as ourselves have done a fair amount of study on um, the phenomena when you smother, for lack of a better term, uh, flux residue uh, the electrochemical properties are affected and generally adversely. So um, any low standoff device, void or no void, that's a consideration. Um, it's something uh, we're working on to develop higher, well, in concert with that, uh, SIR requirements, uh, SI, surface insulation resistance testing requirements are becoming more and more strict as well. Uh, Fred mentioned the automotive industry. Um, they drive a lot of, pun intended, they drive a lot of what uh, happens um, in terms of product development and research. And um, they're doing 1,000 hour, 2,000 hour, and 3,000 hour uh, life cycle testing on materials. And, uh, you know, that's putting pressure on the suppliers of all the materials to develop things that can withstand these more aggressive longer uh, test cycles, which can result in things such as electromigration occurring where it would not have been detected on a B24 coupon in an open atmosphere. Very good. Uh, Fred, I'm gonna go back to your presentation and then I wanna steer the conversation toward profiling uh, if I can, because I, I, I have some questions about profiling and I have a few uh, in my world, in the cleaning world, where my day job, uh, the, the profiling is actually quite important because the lack of proper reflow temperature can fall into a, a cleaning problem later, but we'll get into that in a little bit. Let's, um, mm -hmm. let's go through uh, the rest of your presentation here. Okay. Uh, 
if you should go to the next slide, that would be helpful. There we are. This is an explanation of a trial that uh, Tim mentioned that was done at the Universal, at the Advanced Process Lab at Universal. This is a copy of the board that we did. We had a whole bunch of different components on the board. We did it in air and nitrogen, a uh, number of different uh, paste, uh, SAC 305, Interlot, tin lead, had three paste suppliers plus one more, which was Tim, and I'll explain that in a second. <laughs> Two board furnishes, a couple of pad designs, some with veers, and we varied the vacuum level in the whole time. We ran well over 200 boards with multiple data points from each of the boards uh, to develop a, an understanding of what really went on during vacuum reflow. I'll come back to the comment about, uh, about Tim, um, that other pace supplier. Tim came in and we ran some of his pace through the through the, through on this particular board. We did a quick analysis of that. Uh, we don't have a lot of statistics on that because we only ran a small number of boards through, but we were very surprised at how good the the pace that AIM had responded to the uh, uh, to the vacuum reflow. Um, they were at the lower end of the voiding of, of what we had seen in it. To us, it was surprising. Tim asked me if he could use this uh, in marketing campaigns later. And I, I was kind of hesitant to, to allow that to happen only because uh, uh, we didn't have an awful lot of data, a lot of statistical data to back it up. But yes, it was real. I mean, I mean he, he, I was, I, we were amazed at how good the AIM solder paste was in the vacuum. Okay, if we run to the next, not to uh, not to rain on the not to rain on the aim parade, um, but but does the use of hey bring, put your umbrella up, Tim? Put your umbrella up for a moment. Does vacuum reflow widen the spectrum of useful solder paste? In other words, if there's a solder paste that's known to be fairly high voiding, will when it is used in a vacuum reflow uh, process, will that lower the amount of voiding? Does every paste perform better or in a vacuum reflow environment, or are there still needs to have specific formulations that would somehow take advantage of the vacuum re reflow process? If, if that question makes sense. That, no, no, that's a very good question. Uh, um, I would say that uh, vacuum reflow works with, uh, you know, it, help, it helps lower the voids in any of the paste. That, that, that people are using. One of the reasons that uh, um, the automotive folks are very interested in vacuum reflow today is that they can change to vacuum reflow in their process line and not have to change the paste. And th what happens is they spent, spent you know, a large amount of time qualifying their process and qualifying their materials. And, and to, for them to change the paste to low voiding paste, would take a large amount of qualification. They have to start all the way over from the beginning. I mean, it's it's not something where they can do within months. It's something that takes years. And what they can then do is they can just switch over to the vacuum reflow and not have to go through the massive qualification process. I mean, that's one of the things that's driving vacuum reflow. From For my audience's sake, I, I don't want to get into brands and prices, uh, but just as a generic statement um, from a, let's put it in a percentage standpoint, percentage wise, how much extra 
is uh, <laughs> does it cost for vacuum reflow compared to standard you know standard convection or whatever uh is it a is it a 50 percent increase is it a thousand percent increase in general uh what are people paying for the advantages of lower voiding through vacuum would, reflow you know I'm, I'm guessing in the range of uh uh, 50 percent uh, 50 maybe even 75 percent more and part of part of it is that the, that vacuum chamber and vacuum pump is not inexpensive you're adding it to us to a reflow oven you're adding this this large amount of cost to a reflow oven uh, so yeah it is expensive i, I I'm, I'm saying you know 50 percent plus um, the, yeah, not we, just the pump, but you were, Tim was calling it a very space-age-looking machine. There's a lot yes, of moving components, right? Yes, uh, yes, conveyors yes. that move boards around and yes. pull them aside and put them in a vacuum chamber and things like that. Okay, let's go. Uh, sorry, I um, diverted another, you. Yes, that's okay. Another, another part of that is that because of that, it, because people don't want to have a, a line that just runs through vacuum reflow, we have the ability now to do what's called a pass-through mode. And what that does is the oven acts like a regular oven, um, a regular reflow oven, um, uh, without having to go through the vacuum cycle. So what we do is have actually heat in the in the vacuum chamber so that it acts like a regular oven. Okay, great. So so that does help. That does help the cost a little bit. And in that case, you don't need to separate the boards. It can act like a regular. You know, normally what we do is put this in a uh, in the frame of a 12 zone 12 zone oven, so we have 10 10 zones of convective reflow, and then 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 the vacuum chamber, and then the cooler, and they are in line. It doesn't we don't take them off to the side. We keep them directly in line. Okay, great. Okay, so uh, if you show the next slide, this is just show some results from that. Um, this is the results. Uh, MFL 16s and uh, 100s. Um, you can just see the the 16s are uh, without vacuum reflow or on the left. The 100s are on on the, on on the ones with vacuum reflow on the right. 16s on the top. The 100s on the bottom. And it doesn't take a rocket science to see that the the, the, the voids have gone down significantly uh, with vacuum reflow. Yeah, this slide's a little bit more complicated than uh, than I usually like to show, but uh, but I, but there's a lot of data here that's that, that's important to look at. Um, if you look at the left, uh, you see that uh, there's a 760 tool, which is atmospheric pressure zero seconds. That's without that's without any vacuum reflow. We're at about 40 percent cumulative voiding um, at even 245 tour. And 30 seconds, we were down to 10% voiding. It took a very small amount of vacuum to really begin to begin to start pulling voids out. As we went along with the lower void levels to the right at different times, um, you'll see that uh, see that we we got down to down to five percent and below fairly easily. Um, but at about 20 seconds or so, we we saw some some scatter in the data at a few of the points. After we looked at the data, we found that we really liked the 30-second hold. That looked like it was the best. And this was on the larger components. This is the MF, MLF 100s. If you go to the next page, right? Okay, this is the 30-second hold data. You can see across the top, there's no 
no, no vacuum across the MLFs with 38%, the, 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 the 100s were 38%, the 52s were about 28%, and the 16s were about 20 As on the left-hand column, you'll see with lower vacuum levels, you know, uh, as we went from 500 down to like uh, five, six tall was the bottom one. And we had, this is all the 30-second data. You can see, once we got down to that uh, 20 to 30 seconds, we were down well less than less than three percent boarding in all the different all the different components. Um, you could see that the size of the component made a difference. It was harder to pull the pull the voids out of the uh, 100s than it was the 52s or the 16s. Okay, so that's just you know, matter of fact, that's uh, that that's the crux of the data that we had from that test. Um, but let's go to the next page because there's some things to think about when we start talking about uh, talking about voids. Okay, Mike Malunas and I. Mike Mike was a was a gentleman who was doing the work out of the lab. Um, we had a had a co-op that was with us actually actually a postdoc, Arvin, and we, Mike and I were talking one time at lunchtime, and uh, Arvin was with us, and we was talking to say, you know, you know this thing about looking at Accumulative voiding may be the wrong way to look at this. Okay, we really begin to wonder what would happen if we looked at what are the small voids and we kind of looked at the void distribution rather than actually the cumulative voiding. And you can see Ivan roll his eyes in his head because he knew what was going to happen. So we sent him off to do a project, and that's the next slide shows the results of that. Okay. This is that same basic parameters across the bottom. We didn't do we didn't do do no voiding. And what we found is this is the void distribution analysis on the 100s. And we what we found with 100 and tour, 120 tour and below, the odds of getting an individual void larger than two percent was very very small. At 60 tour and below, it was even better. And that's one of the things I kind of look at and, and, and really something that maybe Tim and I need to talk about sometime is to look at the void distribution that we get from some of these uh, low voiding sodapase because a small void may not make a big difference. It's the big voids that are probably making the difference in thermal, you know, in thermal conductivity and that thermal transfer. I would agree with you, Fred. That was something that we actually had come up with an advisory for customers to silkscreen the if it was possible, which was a big ask. But to silkscreen the bottom of the component into a checkerboard or, or a tic-tac-toe to not only provide a slight standoff that might help outgassing, but to also ensure that the voids weren't uh, allowed to coalesce into one large area and that they'd be broken up and distributed around the device um, in a more uh, more dispersed so, yes, I would agree. Void distribution is a significant consideration. Now, that said, I'm not a PCB designer, nor am I a component <laughs> engineer. So that would probably be somebody that we'd have to bring into this conversation to provide insight as to um, you know, just how, uh, you know, how big a void can be until it becomes problematic. Yes, maybe that's what we have to do is take it on as a challenge to change the industry. Or at least getting yeah, you to think luck. about it. <laughs> yes. Okay. If you flip to the next page, it's just two more little little pieces of data. Um, 
Um, the um, vacuum reflow oven, after it was at APL, ended up at American Competitive Institute, and that's where it is at this point in time. In November of 2019, we had a different set of boards that we did as part of the workshop. And what we did is put two boards down through a standard reflow oven and then two of them down through the vacuum reflow oven just to get a comparison of those. And you can see the, the pictures on the left show about 28% about boarding without going through the vacuum oven. And the pictures on the right shows shows what happened. It, it actually less than 1% cumulative voiding going through the oven. The interesting thing about this is that's a corner picture up there on the left showing some voids right in the leads. If you look carefully, you can see those voids. Um, a few months later, I was back at ACI doing some work, and uh, there was a customer with us. And if you slip to the next page, okay, that customer said, gee, what happens if we take those one of those boards that didn't go through the vacuum oven and looked at doing rework? Because a lot of people said, ah, I did these boards and they, you know, they, they failed voiding. Can I fix that issue? So what we did is we took the one of the boards that was at the uh, the 28% uh, voiding, cumulative voiding, and put that through the vacuum oven. And you see that on the right, and you can see the picture up there in the corner. This is almost no voids in those leads, and it tells us that yes, you can take void, you can take product that has voids in it and rework it. Uh, you know, a number of people I've seen have done that actual thing now. Uh, we've done it for a couple of customers that uh, that need some help and want to save, you know, a couple of dozen boards that are very expensive. To, you can put it back through the vacuum reflow oven. And that oven right now is at ACI, American Competitive Institute in Philly. And uh, it's, a, it's something that uh, that we do have available for demonstration purposes. Uh, ACI is a phenomenal group to work with, uh, and that is available. Okay, I guess that ends. I guess that ends that, that presentation, right? That's the end of that. But ACI is ACI is someplace. And Tim, you know, I've told you a couple of times. You come on down. <laughs> no, I know ACI yeah, I, pretty well. Yes. Yeah, I, ACI is a spinoff from the EMPF, uh, which used to be in China Lake. Uh, California and and then ended up in Philadelphia and and I think it's still operated by the Navy or at least paid for by the Navy is that is that yeah, still the case the yeah right it's a partnership yeah, okay they, well they, they are a center of ex, electronic center of excellence for the Army and the Navy yes and the reason we like it there is because they've got screen printer pick in place They've got a standard reflow oven, one of ours, a vacuum oven, ours. And which, is why, which is why you like the place so much, Fred. I like I, it, yeah. I, <laughs> oh, I, I see how it works. And it's near the airport, so it's fantastic. You could almost walk, you could, walk I, from the airport to there. Yeah, I, I've been there many times, and yeah, you're right. You can almost just drag your, your, your pulley you know, over there. Well, this is such an interesting subject uh we're going to break this up into two parts this is part one when we come back in our next episode we're going to dive into profiling from an materials and oven perspective uh, and uh, we're going to talk about the uh, i love talking about things that could go wrong that just is a little bit more dramatic so we're going to talk about some of the common mistakes and misconceptions uh, from your perspective from an equipment perspective and a materials perspective what are some of the mistakes people make 
when profiling in any oven, no matter how good an oven is, it could be a billion-dollar oven, it's certainly not going to produce reliable solder joints if the profile's not right. So uh, an oven itself is only half the battle. Running it correctly is the other half of the battle. It was probably several halves, I guess. I'm bad with math. Probably several halves. So we're going to talk about some of the common misconceptions of uh, profiling, and uh, we'll get into prediction software. I think that's where a lot of the profilers earn their keep, is uh, not just telling you uh, what the temperatures are at any given point in time and location, uh, but being able to, um, to run some algorithms that can, uh, that can predict an outcome and, and suggest settings based on input from Tim and Fred and others like Tim and Fred. Uh, and then I'm going to, uh, on the next episode, ask you uh, about what your predictions are for the future. So, you know, polish up your crystal ball, uh, put some Windex on it, get, get it nice and clear, and we'll talk about um, uh, what you think the next several years are going to bring. And I think whatever the next several years bring, it's going to be critical with the electrification of automobiles and Internet of Things and, you know, connected factories and, you know, perhaps lights out factories and all of the things that, that IoT is is bringing forward uh, reliability uh, is extremely important, particularly since the majority of these IoT devices are, are marching outside into harsh environments. Uh, everything needs to be uh, right. I think we're building boards today at, at, at very close to the edge of an envelope and uh, the right uh, reflow process, the right material selection, the right profile in this uh, conversation, the context of this conversation is probably has never been more important than it is today. So gentlemen, thank you for being my guest today. Uh, I'll thank you again in a couple of weeks when our next episode airs. And uh, for those of you uh, audience, for those in the audience that have been driving in their car, envious of, um, or, or, or suffering uh, fear of missing out, suffering FOMO, because they weren't able to see all of these cool photographs and images uh, that, that Fred presented, uh, visit our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube, search Reliability Matters, and you can see the video version of this of this podcast, uh, complete with uh, some pretty cool pictures of uh, voids and, and other, other illustrations that uh, Fred so kindly provided. Uh, so thanks again. I appreciate you all being here. Uh, thank you for being my guest. Tim, welcome back. And uh, in a couple of weeks, Fred, I'll say welcome back to you as well. <laughs> All right, gentlemen. Thank you, Mike. We'll, it was a real we'll pleasure. See in a, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thanks, Fred. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Well, that's another episode. Thanks for listening to the Reliability Matters podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Reliability Matters on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or virtually wherever you get your podcasts. A special thanks to Circuits Assembly Magazine's PCB Chat at pcbchat.com and Ascendo Reliability at reliability.fm for syndicating the show. Thanks for your questions and episode suggestions. Please keep them coming. Send them right down here to my email address. Once again, thanks for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay happy. And perhaps most importantly, keep doing it right. Thanks for listening to the Reliability Matters podcast. Join us on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for new episodes of Reliability Matters. 